Hello and welcome to the Owl Hoot podcast with me, Caroline Norbury. In each episode, I chat to amazing guests with way more expertise than me on topics covering the environment and sustainability. You'll get to hear the facts on climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution, as well as discover the fabulous actions that individuals and organisations are doing to mitigate and adapt to our changing world. I don't know about you, but I find it reassuring and hopeful that there are so many capable people out there doing great things for our planet, as well as inspiring me to get on and do my bit too. So without further ado, let's get on with this week's episode. Today, I am chatting with Richard Bunting, Director of Communications and Campaigns International, a public affairs consultancy he founded in 2003, specialising in social and environmental issues. Once a Director of Communications for Amnesty International, Richard has since worked with numerous NGOs, charities and UN agencies, including Rewilding Britain and Trees for Life. Amongst his many collaborations, he's managed the media for relations for the Disaster Emergency Committee's Indian Ocean Tsunami Appeal, which raised £392 million. Richard is also the editor for the online magazines Little Green Space and Green Adventures. With a wealth of experience in communicating on people, places and the planet, I welcome you, Richard, to the podcast. Thank you, Caroline. It's really, really nice to be here. So I thought I've given obviously a little bit of background in the intro, but it would be nice to hear how you went from sort of journalism, it looks like, to getting really deep diving into sort of social and then environmental issues. How did that all come about? So I did, uh, yeah, I mean, I did work as a journalist for several years, um, but during that time got very passionate about human rights issues. I've always been passionate about the environment as well. Um, the human rights issues uh, led me to start working with Amnesty International. I, I got involved on a voluntary level. Uh, I joined. I, w- I was on their board in the UK, and then and then a year or two later, uh, was lucky enough to get a job uh, in working with the press team at Amnesty International. Um, and I think you know. Well, to this day, cut me in half. You'll find a candle with barbed wire wrapped around it. The Amnesty logo. You know, it's 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 been a long time. Uh, I'm very passionate about the organisation, which I think has done an amazing job of being, in some ways, being the world's conscience on human mm-hmm. rights for, for, well, gosh, 60 years now. Uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1977. Um, has done some wonderful things from securing a, a global ban on torture, for helping establish the International Criminal Court, you know, to really tackle the worst crimes against humanity that sometimes unfold when when governments, you know, violate the international rule book and human rights and, and international law. Um, so, you know, I was, I was lucky enough, uh, privileged enough to work at Amnesty International for, for, for many years uh, uh, in their international office and in their, in their UK office as well. Before, as you said, I, I, I left to work for myself in, in 2003. I've continued that relationship with Amnesty and, and it goes on, but alongside that I'm, I'm working with a number of environmental organizations and 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 rewilding has has come to play a big part in my life over recent years and where did that first interest come from is it always something you've been you've thought about uh, but now have it more as part of your career and your everyday life 
Uh, so on the environmental side yes. of things, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I, you know, I, gosh, I joined Greenpeace when I was a student, which is longer ago than I, I, I can really care to think about. And uh, I've worked with the Wildlife Trust and others throughout the 90s. When I began working for myself, I, I really wanted to work on social issues. So you know, human rights and, and development, as you mentioned, I worked on the, the Indian Ocean Tsunami Appeal. I managed the media relations on that and other development issues. And yeah, I've worked with the World Health Organization. So, so all the social issues I, I, I'm you know, really passionate about, but throughout, alongside that, the environment. And and gosh, I mean, quite, quite a long time ago now, reading about the, the potential impacts of climate breakdown and what that could mean, you know, really made me want to engage more. And, and the global biodiversity crisis, seeing, seeing habitat shredded, species going into freefall around the world, and many being driven to extinction. You know, the, the, these, are, these are major challenges of our time. Around 2007, um, I came across the work of Trees for Life in the Highlands of Scotland, which has been doing wonderful work since, since the early 1990s, restoring Scotland's Caledonian forest. The, the Caledonian forest, you know, it, it, it's, it's a globally unique environment. It's, it's globally important. And if you go right back to the, the ice age, um, the last ice age, it was a huge, huge forest that was about 10 times as big as modern greater day London. And, and over the millennia and over more recent centuries, it, it's, it's become more and more deforested and fragmented and, and to the point where we're really the last generation with a hope of saving the forest. And so I got, I got involved with Trees for Life's work back in 2007, you know, this vision, of this big long-term vision of restoring this, this wonderful forest in Scotland, which is, it is Scotland's equivalent of a rainforest right. and its wildlife. And uh, I, in those days, we didn't call it rewilding. It was rewilding. Trees for Life's been rewilding for three decades. We just didn't really start talking about rewilding in this country. Till around, I think around sort of 2013, something like that. And why has that been the case? Because as you as you rightly say, I mean, languages can be quite key. And I guess in your line of business, when you're campaigning, it's even more key to get those messages out there. Um, because we some years ago we might have talked about conservation, but now very much the word is rewilding. Perhaps you can shed a bit of light on why rewilding has become into the into the fore, into the, our language. I think it's, it's hugely fascinating that how it has happened. Um, and if you're right, Trees for Life referred to itself as a, a conservation charity for many years. Um, but, and I think, and we have to remind ourselves, conservation has, has done huge amounts of good for decades. A lot of people, a lot of organisations have worked so hard for decades in conservation and it has made a difference. But the fact is we are being seriously outpaced by the nature emergency and the climate emergency and the, and conservation the kind of which has often been about protecting a species here protecting a habitat there it it, it isn't enough we need we need to do more and that more is rewilding because rewilding is is large scale nature restoration to the point that nature can start looking after itself again and if we get that right it's an incredibly powerful tool for reversing the biodiversity collapse we're seeing, um, for tackling the causes and the impacts of climate breakdown, and, and benefiting people too, uh, but bringing 
health benefits to people, whether it's mental, physical or emotional health and well-being through engagement with nature, right through to social and economic benefits, including for rural and coastal communities, which is an issue that we, we've recently been highlighting strongly at Rewilding Britain. We published a, a major new report on you know, rewilding rural communities and the benefits that that can bring. Uh, you know, to answer your question, maybe a little bit more directly about the why, I, I, for me, a big a big shift happened when George Monbiot uh, published his book *Feral*, and George really helped, I think, put rewilding on the map in Britain. Uh, you know, people were, were already talking about it to an extent, but but *Feral* really raised the bar and and uh, brought a lot of attention to the issue. He visited. Trees for Life Dundragon Estate near Loch Ness for the book. And, and I was aware of all this because he, he then went on a, George went on a speaking tour with Trees for Life's um, then director, uh, chief executive, Alan Watson Featherstone, who founded the charity. And around that time, I saw just something happening with the media. There was suddenly uh, an increased interest and engagement with the issues because this rewilding term just seemed to kind of capture something, uh, some sort of genie in the bottle. And it, and since then, it, it's been a roller coaster, really. The rewilding is just growing in, in the interest in it and practical rewilding on the ground across Britain really has been gathering pace really rapidly um, over recent years. So perhaps you can then say, what is this rewilding actually going to, we need to do it at scale, but what is it actually going to look like? What is it going to what is it actually going to uh, undertake through the process of rewilding? Doing it at the scale is really important. So, uh, you know, we are talking about large scale nature recovery here, but I'd argue that as well as the, the big sites that we're working with, it can, it can make a real difference at a smaller scale too, because that is good in it of itself, but also creates a connectivity in the landscape. So we've got big, projects that we're working with at Rewilding Britain. We don't, we don't run a Rewilding Britain. We don't run practical rewilding projects ourselves, but we're working with landowners and land managers all over Britain. And we're focusing our attention on sites of 250 acres and over, partly because we're a relatively small team and because the bigger the site, the bigger the biodiversity benefits. So we're providing support and expertise and advice to landowners and managers, farms, estates, community sites across Britain who are either wanting to rewild or who are already rewilding in some way along their rewilding journey, but want to take it further. And we've brought these sites together into something called the Rewilding Network, which to me, when you go on the Rewilding Britain website and you, you look at the Rewilding Network pages, to me, that's a tour of hope. You know, Go into those pages, take a look, and you'll see site after site after site very different sites as well, from marine to woodland to peatland to farmland, really making a difference. But there's all sorts of scope for people to get involved in their own lives as well, you know, in, in their back gardens, in their communities, for local councils to start doing more, whether it's, it's, it's mowing, not mowing the life out of road verges where they don't have to, where visibility of drivers isn't an issue, uh, or mowing the life out of green corners in parks, for example. So we allow some vegetation to come back. We allow native trees to come back and we provide habitats for, for mammals and invertebrates and 
and pollinating insects. Um, and if we get it right, we're all engaging in something that's on the same trajectory, whether you, whether you call it rewilding or not. You know, these big sites, whether it's Trees for Life, Dundragon Estate in Scotland, or um, you know, the, the uh, sites like Wild Ken Hill in Norfolk, which is now the home of BBC Spring Watch and BBC Autumn Watch, um, th through to sites in the West Country. And, and you know, these sites are making a real difference. But if we all start getting involved, and we can, which is a beauty of rewilding, because it's really empowering. We can all make a difference. And then we're starting to help nature recover um, across the landscape and, and bringing back, you know, very much needed connectivity between habitats so that, that plants and animals can, can spread and expand and, you know, and survive and thrive. There's two quite key things that I want to bring out of that. That's really uh, interesting what you just said on a sort of global, sort of a lens out and a lens in on your own personal turf in the garden and then these big projects. The connectivity is an interesting thing, isn't it? But I also, I wonder, because there's so many stakeholders, there's so many landowners, how do we get everybody on board, big and small, to recognise, to play their part? And then to be able to make these, because you're talking about physical connection, aren't you? That, that wildlife can go from one area so they're mm. not surrounded by concrete, I imagine. How do we um, get everyone involved and get all that connection? Because there's obviously lots of people. I think, I mean, I think there's all sorts of answers in a way. One of the answers is that rewilding itself offers hope. We, we, we are facing these huge threats of climate breakdown, uh, the, the, the global biodiversity crisis, and, and an overlapping health crisis. You know, I mean, the pandemics like COVID-19, behind COVID-19, are, you know, they are, they are largely driven by, by our broken relationship with nature. You know, the, the, next, the next pandemic is an accident waiting to happen because the more that we destroy habitats and, and, and mistreat wildlife or, or traffic wildlife, the more danger there is of, of a virus making this leap between species. So the nature crisis, climate crisis, health crisis, these are massive threats. And that's kind of overwhelming. We need government action and we need big business action, including on reducing fossil fuel use, for example, and, and, and for less habitat destruction. Alongside all that, though, rewilding is offering a nature-based solution. It's one solution, not the only solution but it could play a really key role. And it's a relatively new approach. One beautiful thing about rewilding to me is that we don't need to wait for governments and big business. People can start doing it and they are doing it. And, and increasing numbers of landowners and managers are doing it. So Rewilding Britain's land, uh, Rewilding Network's an example. I work with another charity in Scotland called Scotland The Big Picture. And, and Scotland The Big Picture is operating a, a smaller network when I say smaller, they're smaller sites. So these are 50 acres and over community woodlands, crops, farms. And, and the point of this is that, again, it's empowering people, but and it's creating nature-rich stepping stones across Scotland. So this is all happening, but we really, really do need governments on board too, mm -hmm. because they can help make a really big difference. So in Scotland, for example, Several of the charities I work with, Trees for Life, Rewilding Britain, Scotland, The Big Picture, and, and a number of other charities and organisations have formed the Scottish Rewilding Alliance. 
And the Scottish Rewilding Alliance is calling on the Scottish government to declare Scotland to be the world's first rewilding nation. So that would be an incredibly powerful statement of intent. You know, Scotland's landscapes are beautiful. They're awe-inspiring, but they're ecologically depleted. Most of those beautiful hills should be covered with native woodlands. Scotland's got vast areas of peatland, which is an amazing carbon sink when it's healthy, but when it's damaged, when it's drained, when it's burnt, it, it start, they start releasing carbon dioxide instead. So declaring Scotland to be a rewilding nation would show the Scottish government is taking this seriously. It's, it would be leading up to Scotland's responsibility and ability to play a key role because Scotland has got the landscapes, it's got the wealth, we know how to do it. And this would see Scotland rewilding 30% of its land and sea by 2030. And alongside that, rewilding Britain is, is, is calling on the UK government to, to ensure major nature recovery in Britain by 2030. So the, the government have promised to protect 30% of Britain by 2030. A question is, are we talking about the same thing? Uh, the, the, the UK government, we, we it, clearly, it's talking about land that's already protected and designated and it gets the tick mark. But in fact, most of our national parks are actually not in a healthy state. So these, these should be the jewels in the crown of nature recovery in Britain. But unfortunately, most of our national parks, despite some superb conservation initiatives and a lot of hard work by the people in those national parks, they were never set up to, to, to fight the nature and the climate crises. And they don't have the ability, the authority to, be, to really be able to do all that they should be doing. And a lot of the habitats are actually in a poor way. So what we'd like to see the UK government doing is really ramping up its ambition, not just talking about protecting landscapes or assuming that currently protected landscapes are enough, but actually talking about major nature recovery by 2030. Um, and that will, that will be a whole range of approaches, you know, from nature reserves to regenerative farming to, to communities engaging in nature-based enterprises. And, and we would like to see about 5%, which is about, mm, about two and a half million acres of Britain undergoing being core rewilding areas by 2030. So there you'd see peatlands, native woodlands, moorlands, heathlands, river systems, seas, really regenerating. I can't, I can't remember if I'm answering your question now. I've kind of bounced yes, off. Yes, well, yeah, we talked about connectivity and moved on from there. That's absolutely yeah. fine. I think, though, because you make uh, the, a good case about all these different types of ecosystem within our uh, UK and the differences between just looking after them, but managing this, I think some people might think rewilding is just letting it alone and it'll do its own thing, right. but that isn't necessarily yeah. the case, is it? It's not. It's not. And in this in this country, you know, we, we've we've battered nature so much we can't now just take our hands off the steering wheel and say okay nature there you go get on with it again it, it we need human interventions to kind of kick start a lot of natural processes again to help nature get back onto nature's feet so it it, it would require intervention it requires immediate interventions and short-term interventions but then hopefully in the long term then we can start backing off and allow nature then we can allow nature to start doing what it does so well and has done you know since year dot it, so in that sense it's also quite different from conservation conservation has often been about quite intensive management of particular habitats to keep them as they are now or, or to protect certain species and that can be quite expensive it's really good it's great we need more of it but rewilding can be 
much more cost effective on a big scale because we can back off and allow nature to do what, what it does well. So an example of that would be natural regeneration of, of woodlands and vegetation. But we can't, we can't always just back off and allow that nature to do it. You can in some locations, but in others, the seed source won't be, there won't be seed sources close enough, you know, for, for a woodland to start regenerating. Uh, in other situations, we've pushed the ecosystem to a point where it's completely out of balance. So an example there would be, we've driven all of our apex predators in terms of mammals to extinction. The biggest we have now left in this country is the fox. A consequence of that in, in Scotland, for example, is that we're seeing overgrazing by out of control deer numbers. And deer, deer then, uh, roe deer and red deer are native species, they're part of the ecosystem, but, but they love eating baby trees. So that requires interventions. So Trees for Life, for example, in some sites has to fence off areas of regenerating forest in what it calls exclosures, because it's to keep the deer out. Uh, you know, and at the same time, well, there's a question about, do we need to re reintroduce an apex predator at some point? For some people, rewilding the shorthand as well for shorthand is, is these bringing back these big, exciting beasties. It, often it isn't, it's about restoring habitats, whether it's woodland or peatland or river systems. When you do reintroduce species, it's, it's when the time's right. So you've got the habitat, you have proper public consultation. You have to do that to get a reintroduction license. But the question here would be, well, when, how do we reintroduce an apex predator, which would help contain the numbers of, of grazing deer, or at least reintroduce an element of natural fear into the environment so that deer don't overgraze particular areas, but with impunity, they, they're kept on the move. And realistically, the best candidate there would, would be the Eurasian lynx. We, we know people can live alongside the lynx happily that happens in europe there's no known attacks by lynx on people they're a shy ambush hunter about the size of a small dog they prey on roe deer and probably the impact would be more about keeping the deer on their toes and moving rather than the numbers of deer that the lynx would take so what a number of the charities i work with would like to see would be a trial reintroduction in scotland you know they, they, they would be gps tagged you'd monitor it you'd be careful you'd, you'd assess it carefully proper public consultation, but, but to reintroduce the apex predator. And if we get that right, that could be a massive wildlife, you know, tourism draw as well as we're seeing in, in other countries. For sure. So on that scale, you know, on that scale, yeah, you know, really interventions are necessary. I'll, I'll, I'll pause in a moment, but I think on a smaller scale, some of the beauty of rewilding is that you can, you can help bring nature back in your local area through investing less time, less cost, less effort. And this is something, you know, you mentioned I, I run a project and magazine called Little Green Space, and we're really active on Twitter at LD Space. And we're, we, we're kind of pushing this message a lot because one, of the, one, of, one issue amongst many, and then I will pause, is that um, we're a very, very neat and tidy society in Britain to the point where we overmanage green spaces for example or other areas so we over mow we have chemical spray usage all of which has knock-on consequences on invertebrates and bird life and mammals and and all we've got so many species that are collapsing in terms of their populations 
So, so in your garden, you know, try leaving a scruffy area, for example, an area of the lawn that doesn't get mown, but let some of the wildflowers start emerging. You know, dandelions, dandelions, so many people hate dandelions, they get mowed, but the dandelions are brilliant. You, you, not only can you eat them, um, they support over 50 species of insects. And, and in the early part of the year, uh, when bumblebees are emerging from hibernation, dandelions can be a real lifeline to, to, to bumblebees and to solitary bees uh, and also, you know, for, for other species too. So that's just an example of on the, on the local level, on the personal level, just back off a bit in your garden, have some scruffy areas, don't be over tidy. It's a lot less work, it's a lot less expense. You don't need to be using, you know, chemicals which have a carbon footprint too, um, and, and see what life returns to your patch and i think people you know you it's surprising how quickly life starts returning and on that point of how quickly you might see a change in the time that you've been working with different uh, organizations has there been a project because some of these projects will take a long period of time to to just get going and then to see the fruits of the uh, fruits of the project have you seen the results of a project emerging have you been in it that long that you can go oh now i can see that that's going to be successful i i think for a lot of rewilding projects and other nature recovery projects it sometimes the the, the immediate results can be surprising you know i mean rewilding is a long-term process and and in some ways it will take a long term time for the impacts to be seen if you look at what trees for life's doing in scotland with the caledonian forest that is a really that's a vision of 200 300 years really before you've got a fully functioning ecosystem again with with including with ancient pine you know scots pines which form the backbone of the forest so that's a longer term thing yet on the even when looking at trees for life's work in the highlands though you can you can look at the before and after shots of various areas of regenerating woodland or you know, woodland that's been planted by trees for life volunteers that come in from all over the world and that have been reforesting the hills and you can see you can see the difference that makes and at, at trees for life's estate dundragon near loch ness it's a 10,000 acre estate the charity bought in 2008 it, it was a former deer hunting estate the transformation that's been happening there at Dundragon since 2008 has just been stunning. And last year, uh, in a real wildlife success story, golden eagles returned for the first time in 40 years to, to the area, to Dundragon, to nest. Now, that's partly because Trees for Life had constructed an artificial eerie on the, uh, the so that we found an old eagle's nest, probably decades old. They, they set up this artificial eerie on the site. So it's partly because of that, but partly because of the habitat that's been, been restored, because there's been a lot of work restoring uh, mountaintop woodlands. They're called montane woodlands. These short, stubby trees like dwarf birch that form an excellent habitat for golden eagles, as well as, as, well as other species like mountain hares and wind eagles. So the habitat's there, the, the prey's probably coming back. And then this golden eagle, this golden, this pair of golden eagles came, they had a chick and they fledged last year. So that, you know, so seeing those sorts of stories happening, you know, it shows you that really within quite rapidly, rewilding can make, make a big difference. And is that quite a key thing when you're, because you're all about communicating rewilding? Is that quite key to get across that these are this is what it could look like to, to draw people in? Does that is that one of the selling points to get people well, excited about it? I think for 
I think there's a, there's a few things around that, that that I think are important. I think one is it is one is that it, it's paint is a vision of hope and, and showing that change is possible. I think alongside that, you need to frame it against the challenges, the nature crisis and the climate crisis, and I'd argue to a large extent the health crisis too. And 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 but but not getting too bogged down in the fact there's a crisis because that becomes overwhelming for some people. Um, some of us, like me, I'm a campaigner, I've been for many years, I will engage, and, I, and there are others that clearly who do so. But I think for a lot of people, it can be a bit overwhelming, and, well, what can we do? So I think the reminder that the problems are there, that they are really serious, but, but that actually there is hope, and that there are numerous positive consequences and benefits from certain approaches. So we can be, you know, we can be tackling the nature crisis and climate breakdown, without having to necessarily undergo huge sacrifices. I personally argue that lots of ways we, could, we, can, we can make a difference in reducing fossil fuels don't need to be seen as this huge sacrifice. You know, we do need big business and governments really stepping up to the plate on that issue. But in our own lives, um, it can make a difference. You know, if you, if, you, if you walk your kids to school slightly, it's better for your health and, and it's better for the kids' health and, and you've got less cars idling around the school gates giving the kids asthma because they're chucking fumes out of the car, for example. Or if you're, if you're reintroducing community orchards to an area, you're boosting nature, you're benefiting local people, you've got trees soaking up CO2. And there's a whole range of things we can be doing on these issues that, are, that carry all sorts of other positive benefits for people and for society and for communities. And, 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 and rewilding for me really nails that big time because it's about big landscape scale change, which would allow us all to be living in a nature rich country once again. You know, we've forgotten what it's like really yeah. in many ways. I, I, I can come on to that in a minute if you like, but we've really undergone big change in this country. So we're all starting to forget what it's like, but we yeah. could be living in a nature rich society again. I think it's a good point that you make, and I guess it's a thread right through your life, is that the people and the nature go hand in hand and it benefits both parties. It's, it's not, and it's a complex, everything is complex, isn't it? Because everything is connected. But I think you, you can see the benefits to both parties if we make progress in this area. What, what's your ambition for your part that you play? Uh, where do you hope to, to go next with it? I guess it's about just trying to play a small role in making a difference, uh, whether it's on an issue like human rights or development or the nature crisis and the climate crisis. I think largely, you know, I think partly, you know, we can all make big differences in our lives by taking small actions. You know, one person alone can make a difference. Millions of people working together can change the world. And I really subscribe to that. Equally, I think, there are times to look around and think, well, here's something that can make a really big difference if enough people support it. So I'm, I, I'm kind of a big believer in that as well. So an example of that would be currently in Dumfries and Galloway in southern Scotland. There's a community in the town of Langham trying to buy out another 5,000 acres of land from the Duke of Buccleuch, which is one of Scotland's biggest landowners. So last year, they kind of achieved the impossible. They set out to buy 5,000 acres with a community buyout. Uh, to rate, They raised 3.8 million pounds to buy 5,000 acres. And they're, they're currently working, there's a charity leading the way there called the Langham Initiative. They're currently right now trying to raise another two 
1.2 million pounds to buy another 5,000 acres. And this land is forming a vast new nature reserve called the Terrace Valley Nature Reserve. Now I got involved last year on a voluntary basis because I just thought, well, you know, this is a hugely inspiring project. So, you know, I really, really advocate the small changes we can all make in our lives and in our communities. But equally, there are projects like this that are big scale and ambitious and can be a blueprint and an inspiration to other people around the country. So, yeah, it did feel impossible for much of 2020, the community setting out to raise this huge amount of money. But thanks to the support of thousands of people around the world and some big funders as well that stepped in, they raised this, you know, nearly four million pounds to set up this vast new nature reserve. And it, there's, there's ancient woodland there, they're planting new woodland, they're restoring peatlands. It's a fantastic area for wildlife, including various bird species. It, it's, it's, a, it's a refuge for hen harriers, which are extremely persecuted around the UK. But, and to jump back to your question, Caroline, it, it's about nature, it's about climate, managing, tackling the climate breakdown. And it's really about people because the Langham community, it's a former mill town. Most of those mills are closed. And, and the, their vision was to buy this land to help regenerate the community with, with, through an approach that's got nature at its heart. So there's a, they've got a detailed business plan for, for generating income from the nature reserve, including through nature tourism, um, through uh, possibly a new dark sky center, through renewable energy. So they've got this detailed business plan to help regenerate the community. And it's just, and I, it, just been, it has been hugely inspiring to see the people from different walks of life and, and a vast an array of ages as well, getting involved and being inspired by this this story of hope in Langham. Um, so I think, you know, there are, there are times like that when, when a project is happening that, that can really be a lever for significant change, not, you know, and hopefully with this case, it'll be a lever for big change in Langham, but also it'll be an inspiration for other community buyout projects and, and nature recovery projects right across Britain. And, and hopefully, you know, further afield, you know, across, you know, globally as well. That's a great example because it it really does give people the idea that it's possible to do these things and people can be involved in it. So um, yeah, I, I wish that project all the, the greatest success. Yeah. On the back of these big projects that you've been involved with and, and the smaller ones too, I wonder what you then, because you sound very hopeful and optimistic, what do you think the landscape will actually look like in 2050? I wonder about answering that question in, in a slightly curious way by talking about particular species, if we're okay for time. Yes, absolutely, I, I'll, go ahead. And, and, and I'll, I'm going to start by talking about the Scottish beaver, because this week we've seen some, last week we've seen some significant progress there. And I'm going somewhere with this. But we, we drove the beaver to extinction in this country several hundred years ago. They were hunted. Uh, to extinction, you know, for, for, for the, their pelt and for oil and for other reasons. It's thought the last beaver in Scotland was was killed in the 16th century. And in 2009, we, we brought them back. There, there was a five-year reintroduction project beginning in 2009, where some beavers were brought back from Ortova, from Norway, to Knapdale in Argyll. There's another population in Scotland of beavers that were illegally released or escaped from private collections in Tayside. Uh, now beavers, beavers are hugely important because they're ecosystem engineers. 
par excellence. I mean, they're superb at this. They, they, they build dams that create wetlands that support the whole plethora of other species from invertebrates to mammals, bird life. And they're also are good at soaking up carbon dioxide. So, so beavers are, are real allies, they're natural rewilders and real allies in tackling climate breakdown and the nature crisis. Um, but, but, you know, we've been really slow at bringing them back. And the Scottish government has been not allowing beavers to be relocated beyond their current catchments in Scotland. I, I, I don't 100% know why. I think partly the, the issue has been because beavers can have impacts on farmland when they're in the wrong place. They, they can, you know, they can damage farmers' crops and bring down trees in the wrong place. And, and, and farmers don't like that. So the only option is for beavers to apply for a culling license. So what we've seen is over 200 beavers shot in the past two years. An obvious solution would be to relocate beavers around Scotland because we've got the habitat and the Scottish government's own nature agency, NatureScot, has identified over 100,000 hectares of suitable beaver habitat across Scotland. You know, beavers can't get there on their own. They're not going to be crossing the Great Glen into the Northwest Highlands on their own. They can't, that, so they, they would need to be relocated. And, and that provides a much better solution to overuse of culling licenses and, and killing beavers when it's unnecessary. Uh, you know, you could be moving these beavers to new locations. So Trees for Life and the Scottish Rewilding Alliance have been campaigning on this issue for a year and a half. Trees for Life actually took Nature Scott to court over, over their use of um, shooting licenses and the, the senior judge ruled that the licenses have been issued in an unlawful way. And now the Scottish government has actually last week shifted position and said, okay, we're going to start allowing beavers to be relocated across Scotland. And, and two days ago, as we, you know, as we speak, a farm in, in Highland Persia called Argety Red Kite has reintroduced beavers to a private site in Scotland for the first time ever. It got a license from the Scottish government from NatureScot to do this. And, and these beavers, a family of beavers that were under a death sentence, they could well have been shot because they were in an area where there were killing licenses in place, have been moved to Argety Red Kite. They've got a safe haven. And we're hoping this is now, along with the Scottish government's new, dis new way of working, this, the decision to allow beavers to be relocated around Scotland. We hope this, this translocation of beavers, this move of this beaver family from, to this new site will be the first of many. And, and to me, again, that paints a picture of hope. So where could we be in 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think if, if the Scottish government step up and yes, declare Scotland to be a rewilding nation. We'll get there a lot faster. Um, but across Britain, what we'd like to see is nature recovery undergoing this major nature restoration by 2030. You know, so what, well, what does that mean? Well, we could have extensively increased native woodland cover across Britain. Because right now we're, we're, we're languishing right at the bottom of the European league tables in terms of our wood, native woodland cover. We're really not doing very well at all. So say by 2050, we would see that doubled at least, preferably more extensive swathes of native woodland. Our peatlands, our globally important peatlands, restored and re-wetted so that they're actually soaking up CO2 rather than emitting it and providing a, a, you know, a, a habitat for this a treasure house of biodiversity of, of different plants, of mosses, of, of invertebrates. It would be good to see river systems um, addressed so that they're less polluted 
and that rivers where possible are re-meandered, re the, the natural flow of rivers is reinstalled because over, over the centuries we've done a lot of straightening of rivers and that has big consequences for biodiversity and also it, it just it, it increases the risk of flooding downstream. So we need to be doing some of this, not just for nature, but for ourselves to, to protect our, our urban settings as well, our towns and cities, and, and, and to prevent flooding downstream. The reforesting and, and, a, and, and healthier soils on hillsides too, all of that would reduce the impacts of flooding. And we'd also be reducing through, the, the, through urban tree planting, we'd be helping tackle heating in urban settings as well, urban heating. And, and alongside that, of course, it would be nice to see our seas, you know, free of plastic, that we're not seeing seabirds feeding their chick plastic waste anymore, yeah. um, and, and our seas brought back to health. And alongside that, with the return of the habitats, you have the return of the species. So you have the return of the beaver, and we have beavers flourishing across Scotland, but not only that, in Wales and England too. The UK government is right now, uh, has been consulting on beavers and and is talking about allowing beavers to be reintroduced to the wild again in England and that would be a huge big step forward because to see red squirrels restored to their habitats right across the highlands where they're currently they're currently missing but there's no need for them to be missing they could be thriving back in Scotland again because to see the urination links by uh, you know in some numbers in the highlands of Scotland and for a whole really a range of pollinating insects, bird life, mammals from you know pine martins to, to red squirrels being brought, brought either brought back from the brink, rebounding, or or actually being reintroduced. You know that that's that, that all of that is all of that is completely possible uh, if if we choose to embrace it. You know, councils allowing wildflowers to actually grow so that people get the pleasure of seeing wildflowers when they drive around, and that that you know, bird life, invertebrate life, amphibians have, you know, retreats, havens, places to go and, and hopefully can flourish again. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's definitely something we could aspire to, to see these rich, just imagining, as you were talking, I was just imagining what that would look like. And that is definitely something that uh, I would like to go and visit and see all that huge biodiversity come back. I, th I think, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I, I think an initial part of this as well, and it goes back to one of your questions earlier, Karen, was, was, was about people. And, and if we get this right and we have these healthy habitats and we have the wildlife back, there's all sorts of positive implications for people. Earlier, I, I started talking, and I kind of digressed from it, um, about what we've become used to. When we've become used to this nature-depleted landscape, there's this thing called shifting baseline syndrome. I don't know if you've talked about it before on the podcast. It, shifting baseline is really when people accept as normal what they've got now, but it isn't normal. So we've really changed the landscape. I mean, it's happened, it's unfolded over centuries, but since World War II, there's been massive changes for different reasons, you know, intensive farming, development, urbanization. So we've seen 97% or more of our wildlife meadow, our wildflower meadows gone. Uh, we've seen hundreds of thousands of miles of native hedgerow gone. We've seen hundreds of thousands of farmland ponds gone. And, 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 and now we're seeing patterns of people starting to do things like, you know, either overpaved gardens or horrors, put plastic, plastic turf in where they don't need to, you know, over, over traditional turf. 
So we're seeing all these changes and we're, we're, the, the, the upshot is we're living in this nature depleted place that, uh, that we don't know what we're missing. It's hard for us to know what it was like for our, depends on your age, but your parents or your grandparents' generation, say go back to the 1950s, you know, to what extent are our skies now empty where there should be birds or bats and to what extent are our gardens and parks empty of bees and butterflies to, to, you know, compared to the way it once was. And if we get it right, we can be bringing nature back. That brings, you know, study after study has shown that, that nature is good for people. Getting out into nature, engaging with nature, is good for our physical, our mental, and our emotional health. And if we get it right, we, we're bringing big benefits. The, the potential is there for big benefits socially and economically, especially for rural and coastal communities, which are, which are you know, among the most deprived in Britain very often, that we, we can start you working with nature for nature-based to ensure nature-based benefits going forwards you know for for local economies uh, and, for, and for communities more broadly that's a, a great summation of, of where you know where we where we are and where hopefully we can go richard so i'd just like to finally ask you one last question to squeeze in before we finish because you've been so engaged in trying to mediate this change that's currently going on, do you come across things that you are not yet doing in your own life? You think, oh, I could do that. And you've embraced, obviously some of these things are much bigger scale. You're not gonna bring a beaver into your garden, um, but are there things in your own life that you've now changed as a result of your work? We've been fortunate to make some quite big changes in our, in our personal lives with my family. I mean, as well as setting up Little Green Space. So Little Green Space, we set up as a community project. We've done a lot of work with local schools and communities, for example, including planting community orchards, planting fruit trees at schools and bee and butterfly gardens at schools and, and working at that level. And then personally, we, 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 we were fortunate enough to, to purchase a small area of land where we've um, we've basically done a lot of habitat restoration work. We've planted a, been able to plant a small orchard, uh, reintroduced hedgerows, native trees, put in a pond. By the way, ponds are just absolutely brilliant if you want to bring nature back to your, you know, water is life. And if you bring nature back by putting in the pond um, and, and, and putting in areas like wood piles, leaving scruffy areas for wildlife and, and, and planting wildflowers as well. So we've been, we've been fortunate to be able to do that in our garden and in, a, in, in a, an area of land we, we bought at a personal level, as well as working in the community. And, and then there's a the volunteering side, because I, re, I realise when I say this, you know, for some people, they don't have a garden, but there are often things that can be done in your local community. Um, to be honest, even if you've got a windowsill, you know, a window box, you can make a difference to an extent. You know, you know, bumblebees can only fly for 40 minutes between feeds. So you, by planting a one next rich plant next year in a window box, you could be planting, you know, a plant that is a lifeline for a bee. Um, through to supporting other charities, you know, supporting charities and organisations, there's a lot of really superb environmental and rewilding charities out there. The, the you know from the bumblebee conservation trust trees for life rewilding britain you know friends friends of the earth I, I, the wildlife trust i could go on that, that are doing tremendous work and by giving them your support whether it's financial or, or or following them on twitter or becoming a member of you can those those sorts of actions really 
really add a lot and make a big difference too. Um, yeah, there are things to answer your question. I'm doing those things in my own life too. Um, but but equally, you know, clearly, you know, partly what I do for a living is trying to encourage people to to to, to support those sort of organisations because we need we need them and we need we need them more than ever at the moment. Yeah, and it's a great way to to get involved either on a you know within your own space as you say, or with all with with these lovely organisations that are there, all all waiting for new volunteers. So it's uh, it's a great place to end. It's been hugely interesting hearing about your experiences, the rewilding projects, and envisioning this new future that we could live in. So thank you very much for your time, Richard. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Carol. At a time when pledges have been made to halt deforestation and restore ecosystems, it was delightful to hear about Richard's involvement with rewilding. He painted a picture of what the future could look like, with trees and wildlife in abundance. Who doesn't want to live in a land where lush green spaces are on our doorstep? I thought Richard made an interesting point on baselines too. We don't want our children to accept barren spaces as their norm, do we? I've put links to some of the organisations Richard is connected with in the show notes and I would highly recommend following Little Green Space on Twitter. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music and to you for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to get automatic access to each new episode and it would be lovely if you could rate, review and share the podcast. It really helps. Until next time, bye for now.